are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Forceful, transparent, dramatic. Benjamin Krause is a composer and a pianist, and is currently a visiting assistant professor of music at Valparaiso University. He has attended the Brevard Music Festival, the Stamford International Music Festival, and the American Conservatory at Fontainebleau. He recently completed a commission for Oregon Project Media and has upcoming commissions from the Network for New Music in Philadelphia and saxophonist Stacy Moggins. He was most recently a guest artist at the Oregon Bach Festival Composers Symposium. Our conversation focused on his three pieces, Pathways, Night Tides, and Footnotes. Let's talk about uh, your chamber orchestra piece, uh, Pathways, first. Um, and this was uh, this was written for the Shepherd School uh, Chamber Orchestra. Yes. Right? Yeah. And uh, w- was this your dissertation? Yeah, yeah. That was the the last piece I wrote at Rice. So something I loved about this piece was the uh, the proportions of the high energy to low energy music, and mm. I thought the the forceful beginning continues kind of longer than you typically hear in a younger composer orchestral work yeah Um, yeah so so what was can you talk about what was driving the form and the structure of the work i mean with a name like pathways it seems like there might be an interesting answer there yeah that's funny well for that piece actually um you know pathways as a title came pretty much when i was done with it so it's not one of those pieces where like i had an idea for some sort of program or extra musical idea. And I wanted to capture that. Um, so that came later, but it's funny that you mentioned the, the forceful opening, because I think the first thing I thought of when, before writing the piece was I want to have a high energy piece as long as I can make it last. Like that was, the, yeah. that was the idea. And I was like, I just want to take advantage of an orchestra and not give up too easily on how much, you know, propulsion or momentum I can get out of it. Um, yeah, and that's that's actually something I really really appreciated because, you know, I think when when I'm listening to other orchestra, you know, younger composer orchestra pieces, yeah, there there comes a point at which it's like, okay, now we're gonna move into the slow section and it's gonna be ABA and whatever, yeah, you exactly, know. But exactly. yours just kept moving, and I was like, wow, this is, you know, this 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 feels really good right now. Oh, good. You know, to be in this place in the in the piece and still be at a high energy level. Yeah. You know, it's something that I admire. Um, I mean, it's something that like, you know, not to bring up somebody like so old and traditional, but like Beethoven would just take that for granted. Like if you think about like an Allegro movement, you know, there's not like 30 seconds of like flashy music and then suddenly like a drone for three minutes. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not picking on <laughs> and we've all heard those pieces <laughs> no i'm not picking on anything in particular but you know those some of those composers i really admire i mean they don't give up on on that sort of energy and if if there is a contrast in energy it's a totally separate movement or section or or something like that um so i mean i'm glad you appreciated that it was definitely something i was that was foremost on my mind so as i as i remember just being in school with you beethoven was Beethoven was a big figure for you. I mean, uh, uh, he's someone that you looked up to and respected, right? 
Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, of course he's that. I mean, that's, that's, that sounds <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, exactly. That sounds like, Ooh, he, he likes Beethoven. How, yeah. how original or something. You know, I, but, I like, I, I mean, like Bach and apple pie too. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like Beethoven for me, I actually didn't really start truly appreciating Beethoven until probably after I left Rice. Oh, actually. interesting. It was maybe during it was maybe during the um the comp study that I I really started to get into Beethoven and see like see the genius again, you know, because you're you're told your entire life that oh, Beethoven is just a genius. Yeah, right. Yeah. He he's the greatest composer ever. And I think as a composer, I probably kind of looked at that and was like, okay, well, fine. You yeah, know, but yeah. I there there are other people to look at, but truly when you get into Beethoven, holy crap, he is a genius. You yeah, know? exactly. And I also think that they're kind of at least for me, there can be like two stages of loving a composer or kind of music. There's like, you know, at first for Beethoven it was oh, I play this piano sonata and I think it sounds great or it's really fun to play or the music's just gripping. But then later, and maybe this is what you're sort of referring to, um, and for me, like you can kind of take a step back and be like, wow, like on an abstract level, what he's doing is insane. Like as an artist, period, for any time period. Um, and that's when it becomes really fun to sort of draw out those abstract things for yourself, like, you know, contemporary composers or myself. Like, what is it? I'm not going to write like a C minor chord and a G major chord and back to a C minor chord to start a piece, usually. But there are a lot of things that, that Beethoven does insanely well that I can sort of try to distill. So that was kind of a jumping off piece for for this or for this orchestra piece pathways. Yeah, not not Beethoven in particular. I mean, he, he that music didn't really enter into the thinking, but just that idea, generally speaking. Um, and I, it okay. just, and just the idea specifically of having a toccata, like a very fast, um, you know, with a lot of repeated notes and, and flittering figures, whatever you want to call them, just that, that general energy level. I thought the, uh, I thought the orchestration on this piece was just incredibly clear. Oh, you know, I mean, it is, it is a chamber, it is a chamber orchestra piece to begin with. So it's, it's going to, you know, fewer fewer woodwinds and fewer strings so you're going to kind of have a sense of clarity regardless mm -hmm. but even still i thought that that your orchestration was um i it, yeah i mean it, it was kind of it was it was transparent oh good in in a very in a very good way because like it it was it was never you never made the orchestra sound muddy you never made it sound confused. Um, it was just, I, I, that's one of the aspects of that piece that I really appreciate. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. You know, some of that has to do, I think, uh, sometimes it can be a weakness. And I'll admit that, like, when I write, I'm, I'm very cautious sometimes. And I'm very like, I don't like to write something that's sort of a guess. You know what I mean? Uh, and I, not, yeah. not that I was a hundred percent sure of how all that was going to sound, but part of it is, I think as a pianist, I think that plays into it, but just like, I like to think of the lines themselves and not so much like what's this crazy texture going to be. And there are fantastic, right. obviously there's fantastic composers and music. I like that think more texturally and more think of like the sum sound mass or sound total. But for me, I, I just think 
I sort of think in those specific lines and layers. And I think that maybe that results in some of that clarity sometimes. I hope anyway. You know, yeah. when it, but what I'm so, saying, when it's sorry, like when we, I'm saying it, when it works for me, it results in that transparency. When it doesn't work, I feel like I don't take those risks that I otherwise could take. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, for an orchestra piece, like I, you know, if, if this was, if this was maybe uh, commissioned by an orchestra, then taking that risk would, I mean, it would, it would be more of a risk, I would say, but as this was your dissertation, I mean, you, you knew you were going to get a performance out of this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I suppose, I suppose the, uh, you have more license to take a risk and maybe in this situation. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's probably could have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, regardless, I think the piece still works very well.
this was this was your dissertation. So talk to me about that time period and working on this piece during that time period. Because I remember it for myself, and I, I'm just curious how it was for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was very different. I remember you and your classmates, our friends, uh, you guys kind of crammed it in. Like, you really wanted to, you know, you finished it quickly is what I'm saying. Um, I think yeah, that's the we case. Did. Is that right? We, um, uh, it was uh, Steve Bacicha and Charlie Charlie Halka and myself that we were all finishing together. And um, I think actually Chris Walzak might have been finishing at that time, too. Um, mm-hmm. He might have already had his piece done or or something like that. But yeah, we essentially started our pieces in January and we were done in April. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that just gives me like, I'm yeah, <laughs> we were we were all studying with Art Gottschalk at the time. And he mm-hmm. wanted all of us to like, you know, get through it. his 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 phrase to us was always done is better than good (laughs) yeah yeah that's the thought of that yeah yeah in in our case i think you know it kind of pushed us to 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 really like i mean i've I've never written a piece that big that fast ever so and i don't think i'll ever do it again so you 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 had you had more time with it yeah, like I started maybe around the same time. I think I'd had an earlier start. Um, so not the same time as you guys, but the same time of the year is what I mean. Uh, you know, right. like a year later. So I think I actually had an earlier start, like maybe in November, December. And I didn't finish until the following summer. Okay. Um, and of course, like that whole motto of it's better to be done than good. That probably kicked in around like May or June. <laughs> so i do i do abide by that but usually that's the last like 10 percent of the time i have to finish the piece and that's like the full-on panic the full-on panic mode but i i I mean i just don't know like that sounds like what what you're describing i think i'll have a nightmare tonight about that (laughs) (laughs) so uh let's let's move to your to your piece night tides yeah and i remember i think i yeah i definitely remember the premiere of this work and mm-hmm. and talking to you when you were writing it and i also remember all of us all the composers giving you a bunch of grief about your love of uh, messian and do to you oh yeah and oh yeah for this piece it kind of seems like there might be a connection to those composers oh yes lots of connections <laughs> or just one big connection i mean it's not so much like uh it's not so much like a like an imitation of style or, uh, you know, it's not like I was listening to a lot of Messian and then I sat down and wrote that piece. Right. Um, right. I mean, it's definitely, it seeps in. I, of course, for everybody, um, these different, these different things happen, but I think it's really just my love of harmony. And I hear in those composers, and I think it's really a French thing all the way from maybe like foray and actually back to like, Rameau, right? Uh, right. But and, if you, if you think, well, just the 20th century lineage, it's like so direct. It, you know, if you, W.C. Ravel, uh, now I'm going to skip a bunch of people, but there's Lacy's, <laughs> right? I, know, I haven't taken yeah. my comps in a while, but just like, I'll skip a bunch, but <laughs> De- W.C. Ravel, Messian, due to you, Boulez, right? And yeah. they're, and I'm not saying Boulez is after, I mean, they're, they're all overlap, but like that connection is so almost a direct lineage. And I'm certainly not French. Uh, but they, they have this, we have this shared sort of like, I don't know, the harmonies they use, the colors, they treat, they treat a chord as if it's a timbre. And I think that's, that's essential to sort of my harmonic thinking 
at a lot of times. So yeah, that's probably why it seeped in. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, when you're working with, when you're working with harmony and thinking about harmony as timbre, I mean, is that, is that process of coming up with or developing harmonies as timbral elements? Is that, it seems like it's very organic for you. Yeah. Uh, what do you mean by that? I think so. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean that, well, I guess, I guess the better question is how do you come, I, I mean, how do you develop your harmonic language? Uh, yeah, through experimentation at the piano, certainly, and also just sort of thinking about um, combinations. But, you know, going back to the organic idea, maybe maybe you're onto something like, um, you know, the first composer I think I really loved when I was a young pianist was uh, Chopin. Uh, and I think for me, it was like, oh, th- these guys, this guy's harmonies are so much richer and so much more different than Bach and Mozart. Right. So like right. there's like this added there and it's like, you know, and now Chopin seems like it's very common practice and we understand um, some of it on a different level. But as a young as a young, you know, as like a nine or 10 year old, it was like magic. It was like these added notes, these really mysterious harmonies. And so organically, then the next level was somebody like Debussy. Where it's like, right. oh, my goodness, like triads that are like a whole step apart, planing up and down and like, look at these, these listen to these beautiful colors so from there, of course, there's the 20th century and it branches out exponentially. Um, so maybe in that ter- in, in those terms, discovering these organically at the piano sort of has to do with my training as a pianist, um, especially also as a as a jazz pianist. Right. So you're you're kind of I mean, as a pianist, you have a direct connection to to a harmonic instrument that, you know, every day of your life. So yeah, that's exactly and, and, right. and you're yeah. and you're and you're playing repertoire that, uh, you know, like you mentioned from Chopin to WC and, and beyond that these composers are, are directly putting these combinations into your fingers. So so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think you being a pianist is a, is a big part of this and playing that playing that repertoire. Oh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, my love for harmony directly comes out of my, you know, my my experience as a pianist and I, you know as I said also as a jazz pianist when I started studying jazz um, my second year of undergrad that just opened up a whole you know a whole new world as Aladdin would would say um, <laughs> sorry about th- I'm sorry about that <laughs> that's awful no 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 that's, that's perfect that's awful but <laughs> um, well that, that's where that's where it really got in my fingers because in when you study jazz if you want to be serious about it and I didn't really get that serious but I you know, I tried. Um, I mean, you're, you're memorizing like complicated chords through all 12 keys. Right. Um, so I can like, I, I can, you know, grab like a polychord and, and transpose it immediately up and down major thirds or whatever you want to do. And a lot of this is how I've discovered a sort of a language, I think, that certainly is connected to the French of the 20th century and is connected to jazz. But I think it's also just me, you know, my personality and my interests. Thank you. 
All right, so we were at Rice together for three three years together? Uh, at least, maybe four. Uh, what was I doing my fourth year? I think you might have been doing your dissertation then. Well, during my fourth year was my dissertation, and you came in during my second year. Oh, so yeah, I so maybe think, just three. Yeah, we, were, we overlapped for three years. So we were pretty good friends at Rice, office mates for a time. Can you compare rice the specifically the the composition um the composition studio can you compare it to oregon or sorry can you compare it to oregon or <laughs> any i know i got busted the other week um i by, heard uh, i heard your interview with uh is it andrea or andrea and andrea andrea, andrea. okay yeah 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 she she totally busted me on it i don't even know if i left that in or not but i don't maybe I, I don't remember it i don't remember it but yeah I, for, for whatever reason, I, I cannot say that state's name because I think I associate it with, you know, you brought this up right before we got on, but I think I associate it with the Oregon, the the Oregon trail. (laughs) Exactly. The Oregon trail. Let's go play the Oregon trail. Well, you know, know, I've noticed it. I think that's a Midwestern thing, Rob. I, cause, cause uh, my wife, Christina, she doesn't yeah. want me talking about her, <laughs> but I, I think she, I think she has said it the same way. And it's, I think it's just like a regional thing, maybe also East coast, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think there's some validity to that. Cause I definitely, I, I definitely think it's a Midwest thing. Like we see an O and we pronounce it. You yeah. Know? It, you know, it seems, it seems logical. <laughs> it seems anyway, logical. Yeah. Can you compare uh, the rice composition studio with uh, like you were at Oregon or anywhere else you've been in turn anywhere else you've been in terms of like composer camaraderie or the general feeling that we're all a group together? Yeah. Um, well, t- to be totally honest, um, and I think about this a lot, like I'm very fortunate to have been at both of those places because they're I had a very similar experience in terms of that um, camaraderie that you're talking about. Um, I mean, I know a lot of places or many people don't have that experience. And it was very similar at both places for me. Really? Okay. I mean, the schools are different. You know, there's more pine trees in Eugene, Oregon than there are in Houston. Um, <laughs> but that's the only difference. <laughs> yeah, that's the only Just one. And, and, a couple, and a couple rivers, you know, a couple <laughs> rivers. Houston has the bayou. No, but seriously, uh, I, I had a class in Oregon um, the three incoming master students in my class, um, I, it was me, myself and three others. And we all became like best friends at that time. And the class above us was another four people and they were all good friends with us. And so it just happened to be that like two classes of master students, um, about seven or eight, I think, I guess eight people, 
were just this really tight knit group there um, for like two or three years. You know, we were still we still remain in touch and all that. And then right. um, and that was really my first experience at a, at a comp- real composition program. I mean, my undergrad was in piano and uh, it was a small music department. And then at Rice, um, you know, of course, with you and uh, Steve Bacicha and, and Charles Halka and uh, I mean, there's a lot of other people <laughs> that we became friends Chris with. Chris and Carl and Dan and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Derek, Bryce, of course, all that stuff. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And then of course we. Um, it's such a great. You know, Rice is such a great campus to be on. Uh, I don't want to just do like a little commercial for the school, but it's. I mean, it's such a it's such a nice community. Like you have. You're right next to the museums. You have this tight little bubble surrounded by the loop. <laughs> yeah, um, seriously. I, mean, I don't mean a bubble in the bad way, but, you know, it's like this nice little enclosed, beautiful space. And there's a campus pub. Um, there's um, the, the people at the music school are very friendly. And I think it's also the right size uh, and for the, you know, the composition program. It's a very good size for that. Right. It's about maybe at most 25 people, doctorate, masters and undergrads. At yeah. One time. And, and, and maybe, maybe and, even like maybe probably like 17 or 18 most of the time, probably. Yeah. Right? And with yeah. those 17 or 18 or even up to 25, you know, you have seven composition professors that are that are there. So, you know, the uh, the student to teacher ratio is pretty is pretty good. Um, and, and like you say, it's, it's not too big, you know, someplace maybe like Indiana where you're one of a hundred composers, how can you ever feel like there's, there's a sense of like a, uh, like there's even a sense of a studio, you know? Yeah. I I mean, I suppose those people, they have a lot of people to choose from in terms of making friend groups. And so I bet there are a lot of different groups and I, I think they probably enjoy it in their own way. Um, that sounds weird. They enjoy it in their own way. I mean, like, there's <laughs> I, I, what I'm saying is that there are perks to that as well. I bet I, I don't know. Sure, um, but certainly seven and seven great, uh, you know, mentors, mentors, and faculty members to about twenty on average composers is is great. And you know, I was really lucky. I mean, most of us were to have really good relationships with all seven, or at least most. You know, all the ones we got to work, work right. with or interact with. And I think in some. Fo- some way shape or form i got you know i had connections with all seven of them through through studying or teaching with them or having a class with them or as an advisor or something like that let's talk about footnotes um and this this is a piece for violin and cello you wrote this for sonia harrison and lachazar kostoff is that right yeah yeah two call two colleagues of us at uh at rice university the shepherd's right yeah, and repeat listeners will remember uh, Sonia from listening to Chris Walzak's uh, podcast, where so I think we featured we featured uh, the violin concerto that oh great Chris wrote for Sonia. Yeah, so um, it would be it would be I think it would be interesting to just hear your I mean they were they were a, I mean Lachazar was a year ahead of you in the program and Sonia was two years ahead of you in the program so what I mean what was it like working with those two performers and how did maybe how did their personalities make their way into your piece oh, yeah it's a great question uh it was great first of all working with them I mean they're phenomenal like just phenomenal virtuosos as you as you well know and as many people well know um and they're also very I think very generous with of their time for composers, you know, for other composers. 
uh, in our generation, and they love playing new music. Uh, so when I started writing the piece, I think one of the things I thought about was just the idea of two people on stage um, playing very forcefully. I know that word keeps coming up with my music. Um, but there's just a very dramatic kind of tug and tug of war, excuse me, between two very forceful, uh, expressive personalities. I mean, not, well, not I don't mean them as people, but so much as them as musicians. Very, you know, well, very. No, I, I, no, I think you hit on something. I do, I do think Sonia and Lachazar have, you know, very, I maybe not, maybe forceful isn't the right word, but they're definitely big personalities. Yeah, exactly, and it, it speaks through their or sings or speaks through their instruments and just their role as musicians, as chamber musicians, uh, especially. Yeah, um, yeah, and so that was kind of a fun. I mean, you don't always. You know, even if you have a great violinist and a great cellist, you don't always have that extra factor of like, wow, these people also can just um, they really want to rip into these notes and play something that's really like it builds on the relationship between the two instruments in a dramatic or expressive way. Right. And. I will say, however, I thought that this piece might have been the most sparse piece i've ever heard from you (laughs) that's funny yeah you know what i mean like because like we were just talking about you know you're so you're 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 very into harmony as color and harmony as timbre so now you only have two instruments that can play a maximum of four notes at a time so what was what i mean was that a challenge restricting yourself or, or what was it? Did it just come naturally? Because, like you said, with uh, pathways, you know, you're really focused on on line. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think when I first started uh, coming up with ideas or you know uh, sketching for that piece, I think that is one of the things that I realized would be a challenge to overcome. Is that you know I can't just sit down and and play these really dense polychords like I do at the piano and you know, expect that to translate. Right. And I think the opening idea is actually sort of like these, um, it's kind of a back and forth, like violin, cello, violin, cello, and these like staggered double stops. And they actually sort of do imply harmonies that were much denser when I came up with them. You know, you know what I mean? Sure, yeah, they're sort of yeah, like, they're of sort of like, uh, I sort of like probably wrote a, a reduction first and then, then, uh, extrapolated that for the instruments but but then oh, I had that's a cool idea yeah i think something like that or maybe i just had a denser you know i had like a i don't want to bore the listeners with like theoretical details but like um just a denser sound world in mind and then took what was possible from that for this for the two string instruments um but then you're right in general throughout the piece it's much more based on rhythm uh, you know in the areas where it's not sparse Right. Uh, and the more active areas, much more, yeah, much more based on rhythm, much more based a lot sometimes on melody um, and just the colors of the instruments themselves, especially in the really uh, slow sections. When um, when I first listened to this piece, I actually thought that it was a group of miniatures. And then after reading the notes you sent me about the piece, you know, they're more like you, you describe them as interruptions or or like an end note or a footnote will interrupt the flow of your reading of a text. So can you talk about that aspect of the piece? And, and was there a particular book that gave you this idea or an author that gave you this idea? 
Yes, I definitely was thinking about the writing of David Foster Wallace. Uh, I think I'd probably just read, read uh, Infinite Jest, or maybe I was in the middle of it. And I had, re- <clears throat> I had already read a lot of his essays and short stories. Um, and it wasn't so much the reading of his work itself that was influential. It was more of what I read through his interviews and what he said about his writing. Because, okay. because I really connected with it. He said that when he was writing, and I'm just paraphrasing here and probably misremembering some of it, but basically when you're writing something or when he's writing something, you know, you're also, you're also suddenly like, uh, (laughs) attacked by like three or four competing thoughts that might, um, steer away the train of thought that you want to stay on. Right. You have all these little voices that like speak from different, different points of view. And so he came up with this solution of just having footnotes, even in like a short story or like a novel, um, so like in Infinite Jest, I, there's like hundreds of pages at the end where that you're constantly referring to that are footnotes, I think, told basically from the narrator's point of view of something that's you're already that's already made up. Right. It's already a story. Yeah. And there's like a footnote after somebody's line. And then the narrator talks about that at the very end. It's kind of fun and, some, <laughs> and sometimes aggravating. <laughs> but yeah, but, but what, what, what Wallace said was something about how he feels like that actually kind of captures as he experiences a fractured reality or just a reality that there is no, there is no continuous stream of thought. There's multiple um, uh, perspectives at any given instant. And I didn't just think that this would be interesting as a musical exercise. I thought this is how I am when I write and how maybe a lot of us are. Uh, you know, you're, you're writing a, a piece of music and you want it to be really tight and develop, you know, from A to B to C and so on. But you keep thinking of all these other things that the piece could do. Right. right yeah. And, and, and most of the time when I'm writing, I come up with like five of those and, and none of them are going to make the piece actually. Right. Just, and then and then you're just left with, you know, the the trash pile of stuff that that could have been. And during during the com- composition process, you're constantly fighting those off, you know, like uh, that, that's a nice idea, but uh, it's not the piece. Exactly. Exactly. And I think when I was when I was starting out, I would oftentimes go for those ideas, you know, just like <laughs> right. Really, really. <laughs> and, and, and now, actually, I've been actually I don't know if it's I don't think it's laziness, but sometimes I go back to those things and I think, oh, I'll build a I'll build a different piece out of this idea. Um, right. But in footnotes, it was fun because what I did, so the, the footnotes, those are the even sections. So like two, four, six, I think the last part is, I think they're, oh, now I'm confused. But anyway, those even sections are footnotes and those are actually taken out of little cells or little ideas I had earlier in the piece mm-hmm. and they're totally standalone. And those, those footnotes are actually the most um, sort of contained in that they don't, they don't develop as much. They're kind of like, they just stand there. Yeah, and that's what gave me the impression of like miniatures. Yeah, but if you listen, if you go, you don't have to go back, but I think what actually happens, if you listen to one, three, and five, and seven in a row, they're they're all connected. They're all connected, uh, you know, linearly, so to speak. Now, if like if you if you took out all the uh, the even numbered sections, yeah, and then squashed one, three, five, seven together would that form a complete piece or is it just they are connected in material? Um, it would, yeah, it would form a complete piece that I think has sort of, sort of like an odd break in, in some of those, like the seam, if you went from one to three, one has a little ending material that is the beginning of number three. Right. Yeah, of course. So it okay. might sound kind of, I don't, I'm not saying it could be played that way. Like one going to three, 
but you would definitely no, but there, it would sound but continuous. there is a, but there is a scene where they would overlap and then you could continue yes exactly yeah and, oh and that's cool yeah it was a i like the idea I, I often don't have like my pieces don't usually start with like cool formal ideas and i was really happy with with seeing if that would work
that was something I actually, I, I actually, it's a similar idea, but um, it was it was based on uh, memory, and um, it was there was this piece called Memory Variations where there are two. The, again, it's kind of like yours. It's uh, even even sections and odd sections, and the odd sections are this this process where um, I would write uh, like a minute and fifteen seconds of music, and then I would put it away for three weeks, and I wouldn't look at it ever again. Mm-hmm. And then after three weeks, I would try to write that same music again, just based on my memory. And I did that four. I did that four times. But then the odd or the uh, the even sections are a complete three minute piece that I wrote, which is then broken up between oh. between the memory variations. So it's like there there are two processes running at the same time. One is my process of memory, and the second is the listener's process. Like, can you as a listener piece this? Um, you know, stitch this piece together that is broken up. Yeah, I totally. Yeah, because so the the memory is on both both part both parts of the equation. It's the, you know, right, your memory right. and the audiences, and they're also yeah. trying to maybe remember how those memory variations themselves are connected. Like, oh, do they yeah, do they yeah. hear that they're similar? Right. I don't. I don't know if the piece actually works, but I I love the idea. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. I mean, this this idea with the footnotes. I mean, that's I the. I love these kinds of ideas that, you know, they they force you to abandon your typical idea of form. You know, because a lot of composers when they when they just sit down to write a piece, it ends up kind of falling into these just uh more more traditional forms, you know, rondo, aba, what, whatever whatever you're going to come up with, but yeah. I really I really appreciate these these pieces where where the where I don't take the form for granted where yeah. it still has a, still has surprises for for me mm-hmm. you know and I think I think there are composers that have done that in the past that I really look up to like Cage and Zanakis where their their music just has it has a different feeling to it because there is something other than their intuition um other than their intuition driving the formal aspects of the piece. And that's why I think I, I kind of had a, had a deeper connection to footnotes because it had, it had that feeling of otherness to it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't just a intuitively developed piece for me, at least listening. Okay. Yeah. I I really like uh, to speak to what you're saying. You know, I love how like a process that might seem mechanical at first or like a concept that you want to just employ. I like how that can force you, as you're saying, to discover something. Right. It's, it's like, a, I don't know what it's like. I'm not going to try to make a, an analogy, but you su- suddenly you have something that you would have never come up with otherwise. Right. But, yeah. It's putting, it's putting yourself into those, into those situations where you almost have to trust you have to trust the process because it's so it's so foreign and alien to the normal way that you work. But in doing that, like you say, you get to a place that you wouldn't have gotten if you were just leaving it to your own devices. Yeah, exactly. And I think intuition is valuable. I think it also can be can play into one's habits and instincts. I know we like all probably experience this, but like if you only follow your intuition you'll find yourself writing the same thing quite a bit. At least that's how I feel. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. And and that's th- this is something that I've kind of been exploring over the last three years. Is this is this kind of maybe not a rejection of intuition, but just putting myself in these situations where I'm I'm not comfortable, you mm-hmm. know, and hopefully something good will come from that. And I'll I'll be able to grow and you know develop yeah. further. Yeah. See, for, I don't know. It's all it's also yeah. very risky. <laughs> it is. It is, and I think that's why I mean I just don't have the nerve to do that a hundred percent. I think for me it doesn't the, the concept or the process takes me to that that idea that I discover through that process, and then my intuition takes over, and it's like what can I do? Yeah. With, what can I do with this material? And then I mean we're talking in really general terms, so it doesn't really. You know, there's a lot of ways it could go, but I think I feel like I'm trying to connect those two sides of me—the rational and the right. intuitive. Yeah, I yeah, guess I, that's what we're all trying to do in some way. I yeah. <laughs> so, last big question, and it is—it is a big question. How did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? And I mean, you have—you kind of have two ways into this, both as a pianist and a, and as a composer. So, how did how did you come to both of those things and decide that this is this is going to be my life? Um, yeah, it's a big question. You know, both of those things have always been closely tied together. So they never happened separately. It was more like when I was really young, I was fascinated and attracted to the piano. And when did you taking, when did you start? I started taking lessons when I was eight, but I think for like two or three years before that, I was at the piano trying to play, you know, things from by ear or read the pieces my my older sister had been learning, um, stuff like that. Like I was always at the piano trying to to make things make things work. <laughs> right. And so I started when I was eight. I think I was also. I mean, I never formally composed until college, but I loved making stuff up. I mean, that's that's how I thought of it. Like I could, I wrote some chord progressions and. Um, you know, played things that I thought I had made up. And um, then I just got, you know, there, there was a period of time where I kind of lapsed a little bit, like in junior high, I wasn't as into the piano, but I played guitar and drums. And Oh, really? You know, I didn't know that about you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wanted like from like seventh or eighth grade to like 10th grade, I wanted to be like in a punk band and like, um, I just wanted to like play guitar and write songs. And I actually did write some songs at that, at that time. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot I of want, us had, I want to hear those songs. Do you have them? Oh, do you have them recorded or anything? Oh man. Somewhere on an old hard drive, there might be some instrumental tracks that we like recorded in my garage. Um, <laughs> I mean, all it is, is like, it's like D minor. It's like the three chords you would use from like D minor, B flat, C, D minor. Yeah, yeah, You know, that kind of sound. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and just like horrible, tr- <laughs> horrible drums, like clanging in a, in a metal garage. Oh, it's the worst. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I got back into piano a little more seriously in high school and decided that in college I could, I could do music and also something else. So, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to double major and I, I was pretty good at math, so I could do like, um, I wanted to do computer science or engineering or just mathematics, something like that. And I could do music as well. And I thought, you know, I'd get a career and just do music as like a lifetime passion. And then in college, I became more and more 
interested in what was going on in the music department and less interested in what was going on in like the computer science labs or in that, in the engineering building. And I switched my major from just like a BA in, in music to like a BM with a piano, you know, piano performance concentration. Right. And then, so I had a lot more credits freed up for music and I, I started doing jazz. I started composition. I think my fourth semester of undergrad sometime in my sophomore year. And, and then like the whole world opened up for me and I was like, wow, I, you know, I was lucky to be at a place where I could try a lot of different things. And, um, and even at that point I was like, oh, I can just still do music and apply to law school. Um, there were certain things that appealed to me about that. I don't know why now, <laughs> but you know, I, I was like, I could go into, I, I was kind of interested in an environmental law or intellectual property law and, and so on. And so I even I even took the um, LSAT or the LSAT I don't know what they call it, um, and I applied to like six law schools and I applied to like five or six music grad schools. So it came down to that. <laughs> wow. And yeah, it was just sort of like I, I I guess I'm kind of pragmatic and I was just like, well, I can keep doing music as long as doors open for me. Yeah. You know, and I it's kind of I kind of ashamed because you read about all these artists who like overcome so much. Of course, you know. And I think that if, if I think if I was like rejected like twice or if I if I had to be on my own for two years, I would just be like, oh, I'll go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, I'm probably exaggerating. And I, I do love, of course, doing this. And I, I wanted to, you know, I've, I've, I've worked hard for it. But at the same time, I was still leaving all these other doors open. Like what if you know, what if I don't go to any grad school? What if I'm not really a composer? I want to have something else I can do. Sure. Um, well, then it turned out I got into the University of Oregon, I think sort of like maybe they saw some sort of potential because I really hadn't done much at that point. Um, I had a little composition recital, but you know, I was like kind of flailing a little bit. I didn't know what, what I, what I was doing musically. Yeah. So at that point, you know, it was Oregon and I, I got a little more serious about it and enjoyed that. And then eventually I, I knew that that's what I was going to keep doing as long as I could do it. Cool, buddy. Cool. So do you play some outro music to this kind of thing? Do you like fade out, fade I, into some final countdown? I could I could do that if you want. No. <laughs> Just sudden silence is all we need. Pretty much that's how it ends. <laughs> I find I I try to find a uh, part in in what you just said that is uh, profound and we just end. <laughs> right oh, there. it should have you should just end with sudden silence. <laughs> <laughs> that's it just that's like it. just like have have two seconds of silence and then you just say sudden silence <laughs> <laughs> no they'll just think you forgot to edit that last part out like i was cueing it <laughs> like like a like a film where they leave in uh you know cut you know they, you see the guy leaving off the off to the right yeah yeah totally with the board i don't know what that thing is called yeah Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.